0: Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to uh, Luke chapter 5. If you're in your scripture journal, Luke chapter 5. We are going to be in um, verses 12 through 16. So we're going to take kind of a smaller uh, portion here uh, this week together. And you will see why as we navigate uh, this text, Luke and chapter 5 in verses 12 through 16. This is one uh, scene um, together. It will also be behind me on uh, the screen in my translation as well. And remember, we're taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon, so if you didn't get your elements, uh, you can see John Harris or uh, at the welcome desk there um, between now and then. Um, Luke 5, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. Luke 5, starting in verse 12. God's Word says, While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, Moses commanded for proof to them, but now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate places and pray. Amen. This is God's word may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. How important to human beings is physical touch? If, for example, someone went years without even the simplest of human touch, would there be any negative effects? Writing for the New York Times in 2017, Andrew Reiner says the following of the power of touch. Listen to what he said. He says, The benefits of ordinary touch read like a 19th century tonic advertisement, except that the outcomes have been scientifically vetted. Touch has been found, among other things, to reduce stress, heart rate, and blood pressure. Touch has even been found to lower the level of cortisol in the body, which, when elevated, impedes our working memory and, most critically, the immune system's resiliency. It should be great news that something free, widely available, and lacking in harmful side effects is so good for us, but it gets ignored in a touch-averse culture like ours." End quote. In fact, in a study that was done by the University of Arizona in 2014, it was found that participants who experienced what they called skin hunger, were, among other things, more lonely, depressed, had less social support, experienced more mood and anxiety disorders, and an inability to interpret and express emotions. (laughs) Suffice to say, the long-term impact of touch deprivation is devastating. You and I live in a society that is more averse to touch than many other cultures, like, say, Spain and France, for example. That is to say, we have largely, as an American society, chosen to be averse to touch. And we may suffer consequences that turn out could be of our own doing. But what if you didn't experience touch for a lengthy amount of time, not because you chose it, but because people were afraid to touch you? What if it were thrust upon you? What if, what if no one was willing to pat you on the back or give you a hug or even to shake your hand? What if, what if people saw you and immediately walked in the other direction? What if you were treated like a wild beast, but unlike dogs who can enjoy being pet, no one was willing to even speak to you or be in your proximity but, or be in the same room or same building as you, let alone touch you? What do you think that would do to you, not only physically but mentally? But what would it feel like to be utterly alone, and it wasn't your fault whatsoever? And what if this went on for years, or even a decade or more? I want you to imagine this, because once you begin to sense and feel what I've described, then you'll begin to feel the emotion that underlies this text this morning. What I've been describing to you is what it was like to be a leper in the context of first-century Palestine. But for them, it was far worse than what I could describe using mere words. Luke wants you and I to feel the emotion in this short scene. Because what he is showing us is not simply a short story about an event in the life of Jesus. But it's meant to teach us something about who Jesus is. and, And what he's done. And what he's doing to reach sinful man. In short... We're meant to see his grace, love, and compassion as well as place ourselves in the place of the leper. So, in our time together, let's consider three points from this short but powerful scene. So, point number one, let's call desperate need. Point number one, desperate need. The scene opens with Jesus in a city that Luke does not name, and a man come up to him who he does not name. And the man was, what? Full of leprosy. Now, in just verse 12, there's plenty going on that we need to be aware of in order to feel the force of this. Jesus is in an unnamed town when an unnamed man approaches him. And the man does not merely have leprosy. He is, notice, what? Full of leprosy. Luke is telling us that this man is very, very sick. This is not short-term skin irritation like dermatitis or an allergy that will go away with time. This is a serious affliction, and there is no cure. I must note that this leprosy is not the same as leprosy that exists in our world today or what we call Hansen's disease. That has a cure. This is far worse incurable. This man had a type of skin disease that produce lesions or other swollen and blotchy areas on the skin that could be full of pus and could sometimes attack the nervous system and cause even fingers or toes to fall off. And there were laws, of course, in Leviticus and in society of how a leper was to be treated. He was to be cast out of the city. He was to intentionally rip his clothes and let his hair hang loose. And if anyone would come his way, I bet you know what he was supposed to shout, unclean, unclean, that, may, he may, that way he may warn them. And you can understand why, right? I mean, isn't that all that reasonable? Like, the laws in Leviticus weren't meant to be cruel. They, they were to protect other people because the condition was so contagious. Uh, even still, they were harmful to the leprous person who was an outcast and on the margins of society. Because on the top of the physical pain came the emotional pain the social stigmas, they attached leprosy with sin, the isolation and ostracism. People, people not only did not want to touch a leper, and not only did they not want to be near a leper, they didn't even want to be downwind from a leper for fear of contracting the disease. Leon Morris said it this way in his commentary, they, the lepers, had no way of earning a living and had to depend on charity. The psychological effects of all this seem to have been as serious as the physical. People had an attitude to leprosy different from that of any other disease. It was defiling. People were ashamed of it, though it was no fault of their own. If somehow, for example, your clothes happened to touch a leper, you would burn it. Burn your clothes in accordance with of the law. There were even rabbinical teachings that added to the law that said, if a leper so much as stuck his head into your house, the whole house was unclean. And who could blame people for treating the disease this way? No one wants to be a victim of this disease. So precautions needed to be taken, right? I mean, we have gone through and are going through a global pandemic, and we had precautions, but let's be honest, those precautions were not always followed, right? Or taken seriously by everyone, right? And were selectively followed. And part of the reason, I believe, was because the virus is invisible, right? You can't see it. I mean, but imagine if you could see the virus come out of people's mouths and noses, like bright red droplets that were visible to all, or what if somebody who was positive for COVID turned completely red from head to toe? Do you think we'd go about it a little differently? Leprosy, you could see, and only did people not want to suffer the pain of the disease. They want to have to leave their family, right, and their home and work and go out by themselves, No one wanting anything to do with them, likely to die alone in squalor. First century historian Josephus went so far as to say lepers were treated as if they were, in fact, dead men. Dr. A.B. MacDonald wrote an article in the early 20th century about a leper colony. This is what he said, which I, I think should help us to understand what this man in Luke 5 went through. He said, the leper is sick in mind as well as body. For some reason there is attitude to leprosy different from the attitude to any other disfiguring disease. It's associated with shame and horror and carries in some mysterious way a sense of guilt, although innocently acquired like most contagious troubles. And now why I tell you all this, I tell you all this because I really want you to feel the force of this, to, to understand the seriousness of this scene and how Luke's original readers would have seen how controversial and scandalous this was. And Luke is showing us that when we look at this man in the scene, we're talking about a person who had no status, who was alone, ostracized, alienated from society, despised by the world. Everyone treated him poorly. Everyone. But then you have Jesus. This man sees Jesus. And he breaks with all social norms (laughs) and Levitical laws. Not only not shouting unclean, unclean, but he walks right up to Jesus and he speaks to him. And look what is said at the end of verse 12 Feel the force, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Falls on his face before Jesus. And Luke says, doesn't he say, begged him. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Note, note, friends, the leprous man knows he's sick. Yes? He knows he's unclean. He knows he needs a miracle. He knows he needs help. He knows he's unclean both physically and spiritually, and he is desperate. He's at the end of his rope. He's willing to break with social convention because he is utterly desperate. And he knows only Jesus can help him and no one else. And do you realize, friend, this is an allegory of sorts of our standing before God without Christ. Do you realize that on our own, we could not approach God because of our sin and uncleanness? But but our impurity is deeper than skin, you understand. To approach the Lord, we would have to cry out what? Unclean, unclean. We we couldn't approach God the way the leper approached Jesus here. Not even close. On our own we brought forth in iniquity. And whereas the leper likely did nothing to cause his condition, we added to our iniquity through willful sin and rebellion all our lives. But unless we get to a place where we admit, like the leper did, that we are unclean and unable and lost and helpless and hopeless, and then go to a place of desperation to come to Jesus, we cannot be saved. See, what keeps a lot of people from getting Christ. It's not their badness, but their supposed goodness. It's difficult for people to admit that they are this unclean, this depraved, this needy and helpless. Don't you agree? Right. Pride has kept many, if not more, out of heaven as overt wickedness has. We want to hold on to something of our own goodness or morality or deeds or record or standing, thinking they will commend us to God, but that simply will not do. As long as we say to ourselves and to God, I am basically good, I am not unclean, or I am bad but not as bad as others, or I'm partly unclean, or I'm 25% unclean, or I'm 10% clean, or even if I say I'm 0.5% clean, we will be totally lost and Christ will not receive us. We must see ourselves for who we are before a holy God and before Christ and say, unclean, unclean, and only then will he receive us at our coming to him. That's the humble posture of the bowing leper, is it not? Because it is only then that we're truly seeing ourselves for who we are without Jesus. The leper knew he was unclean without Jesus' healing touch. Do you? You Charles Spurgeon, can you imagine me quoting him? He preached on Leviticus 13, where the laws about lepers are found, and this is what he said. He said, well, must I confess, though my life was kept and preserved as a child from outward immorality, when I first saw myself as I was by nature, and in the thoughts and intents and imaginations of my heart, I thought even devils in hell cannot be baser than myself. Certain I am that whenever the Spirit of God comes into the soul, our good opinion of ourselves soon vanish. We thought we were all that heart could wish, but that when once taught of God, the Holy Ghost, we think that we are vile and full of sin, that there is no good thing whatsoever in us. This realization is the beginning of salvation. Because only then will you realize that nothing in you or in the world can rescue you or bring you the purpose and meaning and value and wholeness that you so desperately crave. And on top of that, this is how sinful we are. We can only know the depths of our sin when the Spirit of God comes and convicts our hearts. So we wouldn't even know how lost we were on our own. We need God from beginning to end. We must see ourselves for who we are before Holy God, and then we can run to Christ and have the self-same posture as the leper does here as he approaches the King of glory. As long as we're holding on to something of our own doing or continuing to convince ourselves that we're basically good, Jesus won't have us. We have to get to a place of desperation that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Because it's only then when you realize you have nothing to commend yourself to God that you will be desperate enough to truly receive grace. And then you will live a life amazed by that grace and astounded by that mercy and knowing that the truest, greatest miracle of all is that Jesus would save even a sinner like you. And for the rest of your life, you will not lose that amazement. I think of an illustration I heard Steve Brown tell of a, he told the story of a homeless boy who knocked on the door of an orphanage and he was dirty as could be. He was soaking wet from the rain, and he was dressed in rags. And the man who opened the door looked him up and down. He said, son, I don't know a thing about you. What have you got to recommend yourself to us? Nothing, sir, the little boy said. I thought maybe these rags would be enough. And the man's heart melted, and he said, it's enough, son, you come in. Friend, do you realize outside of Christ, all you have is rags? But do you see that? That's all he requires. This brings us to point number two. Willing Savior. Point two, willing Savior. So Leopard boldly approaches Jesus. He falls on his face. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Those might be some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, don't you think? The leper recognizes that Jesus has the capability to deal with his problem, right? (laughs) Additionally, his request centers on Jesus' willingness. Did you notice this? Not his capability. The leper knows Jesus can. That's not the question. What he wants to know is if Jesus was willing. Was Jesus willing to heal him? No one else wanted anything to do with him. Even the religious leaders... We're impotent to help. And we're primarily concerned with ceremonial cleanness. No one wanted to be near him, let alone help him. Was this upstart rabbi from Nazareth willing? Jesus his only hope. But let's note Jesus' re- reaction. I mean, we really should be astounded by this. Because Jesus' heart is on full display. Jesus does not rebuke him for coming near. He he does not scold him for breaking the rules, or get on to him for not shouting, unclean, unclean. Nor is he repulsed by his uncleanness and affliction. Nor even still does he tell him to get himself together before he approaches Jesus. What does Jesus do instead? Please feel the force of this. This man, who has not felt human touch, intimate human interaction, very little, if any, kindness from fellow human beings for perhaps years or even decades, comes to Jesus in desperation and says, are you willing to make me clean? And the Savior does what. Do you feel it? He reaches out his hand and he lays it on him and says the sweetest words the man has ever heard in his life. I am willing. Be clean. Jesus could have said, keep your distance, I'll heal you, just stay away. He could have waved his hand and the man would be clean. He he could have spoken and rebuked the illness and it would have been gone. But Jesus was not content with that. Friend, do you see how profound this is? Instead of being repulsed by the approaching man whom society has written off, Jesus closes the distance between them, doesn't he? He approaches him. He closed the distance. Jesus came to him. Jesus reached out to him. And he touched the man who hadn't been touched in who knows how long. This is the loving care that Jesus has for sinners and outcasts and the marginalized and the oppressed. He knew how much the reaching out, that placing a gentle hand on the unclean man would mean to him. And in so doing, he profoundly shows not only his willingness to compassionately reverse the sickness, but his thoughtful love as if to say, everyone else may have cast you off. Everyone else may be repelled by you, but I'm not. And he says the same thing to sinners today. And and one would think that because of this, Jesus would be made unclean, right? Uh, But really, the cleanness of Jesus is so powerful that it purifies those who are defiled. He's not defiled. The exact reverse happens. Jesus retains his cleanness, and the man is purified. Jesus can no more be made unclean by touching the man than can the sun be defiled by rising on the polluted world. N.T. Wright said it like this, in theory, this action should have made Jesus both ceremonial unclean and liable to contract the actual disease. But as with so many of his healings it worked the other way around, his cleanness, his healing power infected the man just as the love and grace of his touch must have gone through his whole personality like a hot drink on a cold day. This is who Jesus is. He touches the untouchable. He saves the unable. He cleans the dirty. He condescends to rescue the outcast. Because he's more loving than we could ever imagine. More compassionate than we ever dared hope. And because, get this, friends, there is more grace in him than there is sin in you. And he only exclusively rescues the unable. So as long as we hold on to some semblance of our own ability and goodness, there's no salvation to be found in him because we won't think we need saving. But but for those who are dirty and lost and know it, he is willing to reach out a hand and touch them in their desperation to those who know they're a mess of their own making because of sin and can't get out of there by their own strength and ingenuity. He is willing to be their champion. I think of one of my favorite scenes in the Narnia novels, which this scene takes place in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's this little boy, his name is Eustace, just insufferable, all right? He, he's, he's selfish, he's mean, he's a bully. Everyone hates him, which is fine, because he hates everyone. Well, he finds himself on the ship, the Dawn Treader, and at one point, the ship pulls into the island, and while everyone is working, right, he wanders off to avoid helping, <laughs> And he finds a cave, which evidently is a lair for a dragon. And inside, there's gold and rubies and diamonds. And, and Eustace is so thrilled because now that he thinks he's rich, he could get everyone back, right? Who has laughed or stepped on him or slighted him. Now he'd give him their comeuppance. Well, he falls asleep in this lair of a dragon with these dragonish thoughts in his heart. And so he wakes up as a dragon. Big, green, scaly, ugly And then he realized that he can't get on the boat. He's too big. They'll have to leave him there, and he'll be all alone looking like a big, ugly dragon on this island forever. And he deserves that fate, right? Uh, He's to blame for this. His meanness and hatred have brought this on. He then begins to try to gnaw the dragon's skin off, but it doesn't work. He can't do it on his own. Well, just as he's at the height of despair, the great lion Aslan shows up and he leads him to a pool of water, and he tells the boy that Aslan is going to have to go deeper, meaning he's going to have to remove the dragon skin with his lion claws. Eustace can't save Eustace. Only Aslan can. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is trying to show us there? He's telling us something of a compassion of Aslan, which is an allegory for Christ, that although Eustace got himself into this predicament, even though no one can stand to be around him, And if they saw him, would say, serves you right. And even though Aslan would have been just to never have shown up, even though Aslan could have berated Eustace for his arrogance and selfishness and hatred and said, you got yourself into this, look what you have done, he simply comes to the place of Eustace's despair and offers to remove the dragon scales, as painful as that was. And if we simply got to a place of recognition that apart from God, we are sinners and unclean and lost and hopeless and helpless and utterly unable to do anything about it, and it stopped there. That would be bad news, wouldn't it? If the leper recognized that he was unclean and unable to reverse his disease and did not have the humility and courage to go to Jesus and throw off all social norms, to be desperate enough to fall on his face before the Lord and say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, then he would have died. In both physical disease as well as spiritual. But he did go to Jesus. And he did recognize his inability. And he did have confidence in Jesus' ability to heal. And he did have the humility to beg Jesus for rescue. And Jesus was willing to heal the leper because he came to earth to rescue the sick. But they need to admit that they're sick first. Friend, can I ask, have you reached this point of desperation in your life? Have you at some point in your life realized that apart from God, you are a sinner and a rebel, unclean, unable, in need of outside rescue that Christ alone can provide? Or are you still clinging to some imagined goodness? Are your arms full of your deeds, your possessions, your name, your reputation, or are they empty as they should be? Said Spurgeon, as long as a man has nothing to boast of, there's no Christ for him. But the moment he has nothing of his own, Christ is his. While you are anything, Christ is nothing to you. But when you are nothing, Christ is everything. All warrant that a sinner needs in coming to Christ is to know that he is a sinner. Have you ever gotten to the end of yourself and cried out to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean? Maybe you lived your life thinking you knew Jesus, but really your faith was in your goodness or your morality or your good citizenry and your religious ritual, and you never got to that place of desperation that brought you humbly before the feet of Jesus where you cried out for help in the midst of your inability. If that's you, then today is the day of salvation. Wait no longer. Trust in yourself no more. Go to Jesus and he will reach out a nail-scarred hand of tender compassion and say, I am willing, be clean. But do you realize that besides the damning error of thinking one is not a sinner and does not need rescue, that there is an equal but opposite error that keeps people from the kingdom just the same? I'm afraid that there are those who think they're too bad to be saved. They think they've blown it too bad. They think they're, they're too dirty. They, they've done so much bad that they can't imagine God would forgive them. I bet some of you have met people who say that they're too messed up, haven't you? Too far gone. They've done too much wrong to be saved. What a lie from hell that is. Jesus exclusively saves people who are unable. And the same thought can creep up in Christians too. If you're a Christian, I bet... You've had these thoughts of messing up too much or too big or too often or you are embarrassed at what you've done or what's been done to you and you think, no way Jesus keeps forgiving me. No way he keeps wanting me. No way I can approach him. Into this space, this story reminds us that Jesus will never be repulsed by you. Never be ashamed of you. Never will he recoil at your approaching. Never will he ignore your repeated cries of, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You know know how you tell your kids to do something or, or do something a certain way or with a certain frequency and they go their own way, effectively ignoring your instructions and guidance? Yes, you do. Or you give advice to a friend or colleague and they shirk your advice and they keep messing up And think, if only they would have listened to me. Have you been there? Either of those resonate with you guys? And you let out that, you know that deep sigh that comes from like the bottom of your toes? You throw your hands up in frustration. You've done this, I bet. (sighs) Right? Right? I've done this. We've all been frustrated with people, whether it be kids or friends or coworkers, because people are messy, right? And they tend to repeat mistakes. I know I do. And we can imagine, can't we? I do, that Jesus looks at us messing up and shirking his commands and blowing it and repeating the same mistakes and taking a while to learn our lesson and giving into the same sin over and over again that we know are killing us and we think he lets out this deep sigh. Or throws his hands up. I can't believe this guy. Can't believe this gal. And then we think, I can't go to him again like this. I messed up too big, too much, too often. My touch probably repulses him. My problems are probably too petty or frequent, or even of my own making. And that keeps you from going to Jesus. Hear me, beloved of God, that's a mistake. Jesus wants you. Do you know that? And he doesn't just want you to come to him and pray a prayer once so you can go to heaven when you die. He wants you all the time, always. He wants to be your life, he wants to be your champion. He wants you to come to him and come to him and come to him and come to him over and over and over and over again, every day, every hour, every minute for the rest of your earthly life. And he will never sigh, and he will never get frustrated. But the opposite is true. He will find joy in your coming and depending on him and calling out to him. When he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He didn't mean that it, that offer was like a coupon you could only use once. His offer rest, of rest has no expiration date and no limit Beloved of God, hear this truth. Every single time you come to him and throw yourself down like the leper and say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, he will reach out every time with compassionate touch of love embodied and respond, I am willing. Be clean. Our not coming to him is simply to lack the faith that he could heal that the leper has. Our not coming to him is to lack the humility to cry out to him because we want to be strong ourselves. To come to him is to have the humility to not care about your own pride and strength, but to confess with freedom that we need him because when we are weak, he is strong. To come to him is to have the faith that knows that he can heal us, not to doubt his ability. John Bunyan, who you might know as the author of the best-selling book of all time outside the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote about this very topic because he knew there are those who are afraid of going to Jesus because they think he won't receive them. And he wanted to assure Christians that Jesus will never go tired of their going to him. So Bunyan, imagined the Christian going to Jesus and, and making excuses as to why Jesus wouldn't accept them. But every time Jesus answered, I will most certainly never cast you out says Bunyan "I'm a great sinner, say you. I will most certainly never cast you out," says Christ. "But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will most certainly never cast you out," says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will most certainly never cast you out," says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will most certainly never cast you out," says Christ. "But I have sinned against light, say you. I will most certainly never cast you out," says Christ. "But I have no good thing to bring to me. Bring with me, say you. I will most certainly never cast you out, says Christ. Dane Ortlund adds to this, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm length. But we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. This is the compassion of Christ that is on full display in Luke 5. That he has for you. Whether that's to come to him for the first time or come to him for the 10,000th Time. If you prostrate yourself before him and offer him your allegiance with your arms full of your nothing, he will be yours and you will be his. And he will never let go because your assurance rests on his grip on you, not your grip on him. And coming face to face with the greatness, power, and compassionate love of Christ will have life-altering effects on you which leads us to our third and final point, point number three, new life. Point number three, new life. We see that after Jesus heals and touches the man, he instructs him to do three things, right? Be silent, <coughs> go to a priest, make an offering. Why? Because Jesus still believes in obedience to the law, and only a priest could legally readmit the man into the community after having leprosy, okay? So since the man has been in isolation, in isolation for so long, he must go through, right, the proper channels to be restored to society. Suffice it to say, his life after this interaction with Jesus will never be the same. You agree? <laughs> and isn't that how it should be? Shouldn't an encounter with Jesus utterly alter our lives from first encounter until we die? The leper was never the same after this. Should we ever be the same again after we come into contact with Jesus? An encounter with Jesus in response to our desperation with his rescuing touch should mean that we live for the rest of our lives for him in obedience and submission. The leper got the the bowing posture before Christ right, didn't he? The the leper's life had been upended in the best way possible. (laughs) He went from outside the city, outside the camp, as it were, to entrance into the place where he formerly had not belonged because of his uncleanness and disease. And don't you see that we too were outside the city of God, outside the camp. We were outside the kingdom. We were just too dirty, too rebellious, too sinful to approach the throne of a holy God. But Christ came to the leper colony, taking on the sickness as it were, although without sin, and was executed outside the camp so that we could be cleaned by his touch and enter the kingdom like we belonged the whole time. I don't know if Father Damien is a name familiar to you guys. He was a Catholic priest, and he became famous because he volunteered to enter a leper colony in Hawaii and to live there. (laughs) And he was risking, of course, contracting the illness himself. Uh, John Ortberg writes this. Listen to what he says. He said, for 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone, and he was not careful about keeping his distance either, knowing he could become sick too. Well, one day, he stood up and began his sermon with two words, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they lived, now he would die as they died, now they were in it together. One day God came to earth and began his message, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us, now he was one of us. Now he was in our skin, now we were in it together. Don't you see? And for all that, for his coming into our mess, he expects our lives to be upended for our good and his glory. How could a Christ this powerful this merciful, this loving, this compassionate, this glorious, be relegated to the fringes of our lives? Shouldn't he be our all in all? Is that not what makes sense? Is that not what he deserves? Is not he worth recentering our whole lives on him and altering even our very affections and priorities and desires? What could it cost? Whatever it is, it's nothing compared to what it cost him to get to you. You remember our friend Eustace from a moment ago? Well, I didn't tell you what happened after Aslan told him he needed to be the one to remove his dragon skin. After Eustace realized he couldn't do it himself, this is what Eustace says. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. We began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself three other times, only they hadn't hurt And there it is, laying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I turned into a boy again. Once you encounter Jesus, your life should be utterly altered, and it will hurt As we kill sin, uproot things that divert our attention from Jesus, forsake the ways of the world, and are a witness to Christ's otherworldly kingdom, making it about him and not about us, it will be painfully inconvenient. But he means to make us into what he created us to be. It'll hurt for his claws, so to speak, to pick at our shallow earthly loves, and it will hurt when he chucks us into the pool. But when we come out the other side, every time, we will see that we have turned into what he calls us to be. One last thing. I want you to think again of what it costs to clean us. When he reached out and touched the leper, he was showing the man that he was willing to be compassionate even if it costs, right? And in some ways it did cost. Not that Christ became unclean, he didn't, but I want you to consider again verses 15 and 16. It says. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The the leper did what Jesus told him not to do, right? He told people about Jesus. And on one hand, can you blame him? (laughs) But on the other hand, this caused Jesus to withdraw to a desolate place. Do you see what happened? Jesus and the leper Switch places. The leper, the outcast, the one outside the camp, came to Jesus for cleansing. Jesus reaches out and touches him. He cleanses him. And once he follows Jesus' instructions, he will be restored to the community. He has new life and new belonging, no longer outside the camp. But then where is Jesus after the healing? He's outside. He's alone in a desolate place. He had become the outcast. The leper and Christ traded places. The outsider is brought in the camp and the chosen one is outside of it. Says Kevin DeYoung, this is how sinners enter the family of God because the son was forsaken by his father. We could join the household of God. For us to be made clean, Christ had to be reckoned unclean for our sakes. Jesus didn't overlook uncleanness, he conquered it. And he didn't just conquer it, he traded places with it for lepers of every kind. Jesus, the Holy One of God, the perfect man, the sinless one, was crucified outside the camp, though completely innocent for you and for me, the guilty. The creator of everything (laughs) took on flesh, was rejected, and mocked, scorned, abandoned. Does that sound familiar? Like a leper, abandoned by his closest friends, and absorbed the penalty of our uncleanness so that we could be restored so that we could be brought in, so that we could feel the touch of God and be made new and approach him as if we belonged all along. What grace, what mercy, what unfathomable love Christ has for lepers like us.